Before we get into the message for today, I want to just make a few comments about the gospel reading on page 8 of your bulletin. So if you would turn there, I would first of all draw your attention to verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, or rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And notice, the gates of Hades, or Hades, will not overpower it. Uh, I've chosen a very literal translation for the Gospel reading, as we normally do. This is the New American Standard translation, uh, very literal, and sometimes the translators in other translations will say the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, overpower the church. That's a fine translation, but Hades, or Hades in the Greek, is how the Old Testament translates from Hebrew into Greek the word Sheol, which refers to the grave or to death. And I've chosen this translation because it really brings that idea out. The, the gates of death will not overpower the church. What do we mean by that? What does Jesus mean? Well, my, my take on it is like this. The grave... Death, there is a, day, a gate or door, but it swings only one way. It swings in, it doesn't swing out. People check into the grave, they don't check out of the grave. They don't check out of the grave until Jesus, right? Death cannot hold him. He is our substitute. He stands in our place under the law, fulfilling it perfectly for you and me, Therefore, when he dies, you know, the wages of sin is death. He's, he's paid that wage instead of you and me. He goes to the grave. But for Jesus, that door swings both directions. It swings out. It is now an exit as well as an entrance. And so the gates of Hades or of death will not overpower the church. We will enter through that gate but we will exit through that gate as well because Christ has exited through it and we follow him. Okay, that's point number one. Secondly, take a look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound, now shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, meaning it's already done. By the time that forgiveness is spoken here, it's already done in heaven. Now, binding and loosing refers to this. When someone's impenitent, when they, as the Old Testament puts it, sin with a high hand, defiantly, willingly, going against God's will, when that happens, God in heaven binds their sin to them. It's not forgiven. It sticks to them. They're bound with it as one would be bound with a chain. But when they repent and trust in the merits of Christ, that chain of condemnation is loosed. They are loosed from their sin. So the point is this. When the minister speaks God's forgiveness to you, and it's God's, not his, when the minister speaks God's forgiveness to you, 
He's not forcing God's hand. It's not like God is bound to do whatever the minister says. No, the minister is bound to do whatever God says, whatever God has already done. When you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, God in heaven looses you from that sin. And I am the mouthpiece for that loosing, for that good news, that announcement that you are indeed forgiven. It reaches you through the voice of the minister, but it's already done in heaven. So God's not bound to do whatever I say. I'm bound to say whatever he does. That's the difference. And so this literal translation, the New American Standard, brings that out. Um, Whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven by God's decree. Whatever you loose or forgive on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. It's a perfect passive verb in the Greek, meaning it's a completed action in the past. It's done. I simply announce it to you. We bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, you've promised that your word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Professor David Scare at our Fort Wayne Seminary wrote a book several years ago entitled, What Do You Think of Jesus? Kind of like the title to my sermon today. And he writes the following in that little booklet, and I, I quote him. Jesus was not a great writer like Shakespeare or Plato. In fact, there are no books he left behind. There are no monuments like the aqueducts or the Colosseum recalling his accomplishments. He came from an insignificant town that had a reputation for producing inconsequential people. And yet he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? By what right does anyone dare ask this kind of a question? Jesus doesn't ask, what am I doing? Or even, what do people say that I am doing? We're always interested in what other people do. We talk about that all the time, do we not? But Jesus asked a very different question. Who do you say I am? The question assumes that he is something the rest of us are not. Now, he's fully human. He's every bit as human as you and me. And he is more. In fact, he's more than a prophet. He is the Christ the Son of the living God. He is God in the flesh, in other words. He is God made visible. And everything about your life and mine hinges on who he is. What he does is important. But what he does is important only because of the identity of the one doing it. Thousands of men hung on crosses in the ancient world, but only one of those men was God himself. Thousands of men died on crosses in antiquity, but only one of them, God himself, died for you. St. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, in Adam all die. In Christ all will be made alive. The second Adam, Jesus, 
undid or reversed all the sin and all the death that the first Adam brought upon us. No mortal could accomplish that. Only the God who became mortal could accomplish that. So Roman number one in your sermon outline, his identity must be revealed. It must be revealed from heaven, from the Father. Jesus says in verse 17 to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal my identity to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I love the way Luther put it in the small catechism, the Apostles' Creed, Article 3, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. His identity and your recognition of it is not the result of your intellect or your choice. It is a result of his revealing will. Roman numeral two. His identity determines ours. His identity determines ours. And our identity, by the way, determines how we live. Letter A, his identity determines Peter's identity. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, meaning rock, a stone. And upon this rock... The word is slightly different than Petros. Petros is the, the proper noun, Peter, Petros. Petra is a feminine noun. It's not a masculine noun, it's a feminine noun, often referring to a foundation of some sort. Upon this Petra, I will build my church. Now, what does Jesus mean by renaming Simon, son of Jonah, as Petros or rock. What does he mean? Well, St. Paul explains it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says that the church, what you and I are a part of, the church universal, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and the prophets, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. So Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets form the foundation, not just Peter. Revelation 21 says something similar. The foundation of the church consists of the 12 apostles, not just Peter. Peter is foundational to the church because of his confession of Christ, as are the other apostles. And from the early church onward, and throughout the Middle Ages even, throughout the Middle Ages, the vast majority of Bible scholars said the rock was either Peter's confession of faith or Christ himself. Because St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says Christ is the foundation of the church. So the early church fathers, Tertullian, Origen, Chrysostom, Hilary, St. Augustine, and virtually all medieval scholars said that the foundation of the church is that either it's the confession that Peter made or it's Jesus Christ 
Himself, together with the Apostles and the Prophets. Therefore, when Martin Luther and the other Reformers came along in the 16th century saying that the rock was Peter's confession of faith in Christ, it's that confession that's the rock of the church, the foundation. They were not inventing something new. They were simply reflecting the scholarly consensus down through the ages. It was not until the late 16th century and early 17th centuries, during what's known as the Counter-Reformation, that the idea that Peter alone was the foundation became popular. And it wasn't until 1870 that it became official teaching in another church body. But that whole debate, I, I maintain, is a silly distraction from the main point of the text, which is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what the text is about, who Jesus is. So his identity determines Peter's, Peter's part of the foundation of which Christ is. is. And letter B, his identity determines our identity as well. For example, let's play a little fill in the blank here. If Jesus is the good shepherd, you and I are his sheep, okay? Um, that's John 10. John 15. If Jesus is the vine, you and I are the, the branches, okay? Uh, if Jesus is the bridegroom, Revelation 21, you and I are the, the bride, okay? If Jesus is the potter, we are his clay, if Jesus is the cornerstone of his church, we are what? Yeah, I know it's a thorny curve, but we are living stones, okay? That's a 1 Peter 2. He's the living stone, he's the cornerstone, and we're living stones, part of this structure called the church, being built down through the ages and into the present. So his identity determines our identity. We are who we are because he is who he is. And what we are determines how we live. Roman numeral three. His identity as the son of the living God, meaning God himself, to be the son of God means you are God, means that he has a claim on you. In John chapter five we read, John writes these words, that Jesus called God his own Father, making himself equal to God. Okay? If, if you have a son or a daughter, they are just as human as you are because they share the same human nature as you. If Jesus is the unique Son of God, and he is, he shares the very same nature as the Father himself. He is God, in other words. And if he is God, he has a claim on you and me and every man, woman, and child. Paul writes this of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. All things were made by him and for him. We did not call ourselves into existence. He called us into existence, and therefore we owe our existence, our very lives, to him. We exist, therefore, not for ourselves, but for his sake. When Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee and he calls disciples to follow him, he doesn't say, well, follow me unless you have something better to do. He says, follow me, period. In our gospel lesson for today, Jesus doesn't ask Simon Barjona how he feels about a name change. 
He just does it. He says, I say to you, you are Petros, you are Peter, you are a stone, a foundation stone. We can trust this man with our lives and with all of our tomorrows because we know that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the son of the living God, he is God himself, and as God he lays claim to us. Christ can do more with your life than you can or anyone else can, and he will. Roman numeral four, his identity as the crucified Christ, and we like to emphasize that because the scripture does, he's not just any old Christ, he's the crucified Christ. His identity as the crucified Christ means that you, like him, will find your life by losing it, by losing it. You cast it aside. That's why you're given it. You're given it to cast aside. In verse 21, Jesus defined what the Christ, the Son of the living God, was to do. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed, that is crucified, and on the third day be raised to life. That is a job description for the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus was born to die and rise again to new life. And so are we. We've been born again so that we might daily die to self, our own selfish desires, and rise again in service to others. In fact, only in service to others do we find meaning and purpose and, and joy in life. When Jesus was hungry, the devil tempted him by saying, turn these stones into bread. But Jesus said no to his own desire for bread, and he chose to remain hungry a bit longer until God was ready to provide for him. My friends, self-denial is not giving up chocolates for Lent. It is giving up on ourselves as lords and entrusting ourselves to the only true Lord, Jesus Christ. When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He's not looking for information about himself. He's looking for you. He's looking for your commitment. What Jesus does is important, but it's, it's important only because of the identity of the one doing it. If he is not the divine son of the living God, he's just another crucified man, and we are still in our sins. But if he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then he alone is able to undo the sin and the death that Adam brought upon us and that we have brought upon ourselves. And he has. And it's my job and my joy every Lord's Day to tell you that you are forgiven in Christ and you have been given a new life that is beyond the reach of death. You are who you are because Jesus is who he is. His identity shapes yours and mine. If he is the good shepherd, you are the sheep for whom he lays down his life. If he is the true vine, then you are the branches supported and nourished by him. If he is the potter, 
You are the clay in his hand, and daily he is molding you into his own image. If you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you can no longer live for yourself, but only for him. Your life, like Peter's, can never be the same, and it won't be. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.